Today's scripture is Romans 10, verse 12 through 17. If you're using the Black Bibles in front of you, um, we're going to be on page 946. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from the hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming this morning. Welcome. Uh, if you're visiting with us, if this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. And uh, thank you for choosing to, to join and worship with us this morning. As we begin this morning, before we get into the service, to the, the uh, sermon this morning, we need to take a moment and pause together. As we have had to do way, way too many times recently as a church. We need to pause and acknowledge and mourn together the uh, tragic events of this past week. This week, a week, as has been pointed out countless times, a week that began with us as a nation celebrating the signing of a document that said all men are created equal uh, would turn into a week in which we watched, in some instances quite literally watched, a reminder that our nation is not as unified as we would like for it to be, that all people are not always treated as equally as we would hope for them to be. And seven men this week were killed. Seven men who were created in the image of God. Seven men who were all valued as individual human beings by a creator who loved them, who made them and put them on this earth and their lives were taken too soon from them. And so this morning we as a church we mourn. We mourn for these seven men, for Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Patrick Zamaripa, Brent Thompson, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, and Lauren Ahrens. We mourn for their families, and we mourn for our nation. It would be uh, completely insensitive and totally ridiculous for me to imagine that there's any sort of an easy answer, anything I could say that would make all of this better, that would give us all a, a clearer understanding of exactly what's happening. This, this is bad. This is a reminder that we live in a world that is broken. And that as much as, as we hope and as we pray 
for peace and for love and for compassion and for healing. And, and that's exactly what we're going to do together this morning, as much as we hope and pray for those things that, that we live in a world where that's just not the case. And that sometimes the best thing that we can do as Christians, as a church together, is just to acknowledge that and to mourn. To mourn the brokenness of our world and of our nation. So, so together, let's, let's take a moment to remember these men, to remember their families, and to pray to God, the God that, that we believe is still completely and totally in control of what's going on. Even when things happen that seem senseless, that seem to defy any explanation, that we still believe that there is a God who knows and sees and loves us. So would you please join me in praying? Heavenly Father, God, as we come to you this morning, God, in, in so many ways, words just fail us. God, we've seen great injustice and great sin this week. We've seen people's lives ripped apart, families torn apart, fathers lost, sons killed, husbands murdered. And we look to you this morning and we ask you to do things that only you can do. God, we ask you to heal. Heal our nation. God, with so much fighting and, and so much strife between every side and everyone wants to take a position, and we all want to blame and we all want to point fingers and we all want to say who's right and who's wrong, and God, we're hurt. And we're weaker because of it, and only you can heal. Only you can heal these families. Only you can heal the cities, and only you can heal our nation. So we pray for a healing, a supernatural healing that only you can bring, and we pray for peace. And not a superficial and artificial peace, not, not just a lack of, of violence, but we pray for an end to the violence. But God, much more than that, we pray for the peace that comes when people who are different come together and seek to understand one another. We seek to live together, to love one another, to work together. God, that's the peace that we ask for. And we remember as a church that the Apostle Paul wrote that there's a peace that comes from you that surpasses any human understanding, and that's the kind of peace we pray for. A peace that's not explainable by human logic, but that could only come from you. So we pray for peace. God, we pray for justice. We don't know the truth of everything that happened this week, but you do. 
We don't know for sure who's right and who's wrong in every situation, but you do. You are a God of justice because you are right. And only you know truly what is just, and only you can bring total and final and absolute justice. So that's what we pray for. That the truth would be known, that justice would be done, whether it's by human courts or not, that you would do justice in a way that only you can. God, I pray this morning for compassion. That we would all stop talking long enough to look around at those who are hurting, those who are in need, in need of physical things, in need of emotional things, and most of all, in need of you. I pray that you'll break our hearts for all of the people that we see, that we come into contact with every day, and especially for those who are different from us, those that we want to to lecture, that we want to explain what they need to do, God, I pray that instead you'll replace that desire with a heart that feels the loss and the sadness and the hurt, that views other people as human beings created in your image. God, in all of this, let our deepest prayer be that in some way that, that only you understand and only you know, that you would be made great. That in our deepest hurts and in our darkest hours, that you would be glorified. That from tragedy, from loss, that men and women would turn to you for healing, for peace, for justice, for compassion, they would turn to you, the God who is greater than any human need, and that your glory would shine through us, your servants, but that your name would be made great. Not that, that America could become a greater nation, but that you would be known as the great God. So God, again this morning, we grieve and we hurt, but we believe. We believe that you are still God and you are still in control. And may that belief please fill us with hope with joy, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the reasons I believe that um, 
A week like this is so difficult for us. This, this may be stating the obvious, and so I, I apologize if it is, but I, I believe one of the reasons that a week like this is so obvious for us, or so difficult for us, is because we, we know deep down inside that this is not the way things are supposed to be. That we know, we know in our hearts that, that this world is broken and it's not supposed to be this way. We believe that, that God created a, a perfect world and our sin as humans has, has ruined it. And as much as we strive in so many ways to put things right, we know deep down inside that it's not right and, and we ache and we hurt and we long for a better world. And we believe, we believe that, that there could be and that maybe one day there will be a, a different world, a better world, a perfect world, but we know that this is not it. And, and so we ache with a longing for something better. And, and we who are Christians have believed and have trusted in what Christ has said, that one day there will be a world in which all is made right again, in which all is restored. And that day is coming. And for those who have trusted in him, we will share in that world that he has made whole. And so during a week like this, we, we mourn and we ache because we are waiting for that coming perfect world. And we wait, and we wait with a mixture both of pain, but also of hope. A hope that one day Christ will return and restore this broken world through his goodness and through his glory. And as we saw last week, if you were here, that God has entrusted to us who believe, he has entrusted to us the message of that hope. The message, the Apostle Paul called it last week, the message of reconciliation. Not just a reconciliation between the different political ideologies in our nation, not just a reconciliation between the different races and ethnicities in our nation, but a reconciliation between us as sinful human beings and a holy and perfect God whose world we have done our very dead level best to destroy. But he will reconcile us to him and we've been entrusted with that message. We've been given the message of that hope for a better day. And it's our responsibility as believers to carry that message, to spread that message to those who do not know that hope, to share with others the hope that is found only in Christ. And that responsibility can seem incredibly heavy and overwhelming. And especially during times like this, but not only at times like this, but honestly, almost all the time, that idea that we've been given the message of hope to the world and it's our responsibility to share that message 
can feel so overwhelming. So this morning, I want to look at two passages. We read one at the beginning. We're going to look at a second one uh, towards the end of the message because these two passages, I hope, and my prayer this morning is that these two passages together will help us to see both our need and our responsibility to share the message of hope with the world, but also what we do and where we go and how we deal with that sense of overwhelming at times, pressure or responsibility of being tasked with such a great mission. So let's look first in Romans chapter 10 to remember, first of all, why this mission that he's given us, this this message of reconciliation is such an important message. Because we live in a world, we live in a world that believes That our hope is in what we can do. And our hope is in ourselves. And if we can work hard to make ourselves better people, if we can can live a, a good enough life, if we can convince everybody to get along and stop fighting, and if we can make our nation great again, then we could save ourselves. And because we believe that, we tend to end up looking at each other as problems that get in the way of us fixing what's wrong. Are you with me on this? Because I look at the world around me and I say, everything's not the way it should be. I need to be better personally and publicly. And so I need to make my nation better. And there are people stopping me from making the nation better. They're a problem that needs to be solved. And I look at my own life and I say, I see the problems in my life and I need to fix my life. And there are circumstances and people in my life that are stopping me from doing that. And it causes in me the tendency to look at people, not as people and not as human beings, but as problems, as obstacles in the way of my self-improvement. But look at what Paul says says in Romans chapter 10, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. In Paul's day and in the culture in which he was writing this letter to Roman believers, the biggest division in his world was between Jewish believers and Greek believers. Or just between Jews and Greeks, they had different cultures. There was a political problem between them. And Paul starts out here by telling us there's no difference. It does not matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. We are all created by the same God. The same Lord is Lord of all. All human beings were created by God in the same way. And all of us are liable to God for our sin. We're all equally guilty. And that can seem like a negative, but as he goes on in verse 13 to remind us that because we're all equally guilty, we all find our salvation from our guilt in the exact same way. Way. Verse 13 says, for everyone, everyone, not the people who are like me, not the people who grew up in church, not the people who have worked their way up through difficult problems, 
not the people who agree with me politically or socially or culturally, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation, which is kind of a church word and maybe can be misunderstood, but it means exactly what it sounds like it means. We are in deep trouble because of our sin, because we have broken this world that God created. Globally, all of us as a human race, and then each of us individually through our sin have separated us from God and and are headed for and are destined for and are worthy of judgment and condemnation. And we need to be saved from that punishment. And the only way to be saved, Paul tells us here, is to call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? To call on the name of the Lord means to respond in faith to the one who will save us. Because God in his love and in his wisdom and in his righteousness sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life here on earth, to die a death that we deserve to die, that punishment that we deserved, Christ died that death for us. And if we trust in that, and in that alone, and we respond to that sacrifice by trusting in that and nothing else, then we will be saved. And when it says calls on the name of the Lord, we have to make sure we understand he's not talking here about some kind of magic words. He's not talking about some specific special ritual. He's talking about responding. He's talking about speaking about something that's happening or already happened in your heart. And he makes that clear in verse 14 because he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Belief precedes calling. In other words, we believe in our hearts before we respond. We believe the message of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins. And when we believe that, then then we tell someone. We respond to it. We, we trust in that and that alone. And that's what he's saying here. And it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. To believe is all that's required for salvation. But he goes on and he says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, this is very straightforward and very, um, very logical writing here that Paul's laying out for us. Look, in order to be a Christian, you have to call on the name of the Lord. You have to respond to the gospel. How can you do that? Well, first you have to believe the gospel. And of course, you can only believe the gospel if you've heard it. Now, this is where our responsibility becomes clear. You can't believe in something you don't know. You can't believe in someone you've never heard of And how are they to hear, he says, without someone preaching? But we say, but wait a second, everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody knows what the gospel is. It's just a question of whether they believe it or not. What do you mean, how are they to believe if they've never heard? Everybody's heard the gospel, right? About 10 years ago, um, Joni's grandfather, my wife Joni, her grandfather, uh, was very ill. He, he was in his 80s. He grew up in Kentucky. He worked in coal mines in Kentucky for the, the better part of his life. 
um, and then in Indiana worked in a, a um, uh, the word the word escapes me now like uh, uh, a refinery um, basically that's not the right word but I apologize but anyway he was around smoke and and working in coal mines he delivered uh, de- developed black lung over the course of his life and uh, and so the la- the latter years of his life were very very painful um, very difficult I mean just just breathing was a chore. I mean, it was, it was torture for him. He was in and out of the hospital all the time. Um, constantly, his family thinking, like, this is, this is the end. Every time he went to the hospital, like, this would, he probably won't be coming home. And, uh, and so there was this one Saturday morning when we got a call that, that Grandpa Osborne had been called into the hospital again, and they were pretty sure this time it was really bad. Very unlikely he would come home. And we knew because, I mean, his family and through conversations and just through knowing him that, that he was not a believer. Um, he had never trusted in Christ. He never responded to the gospel. And so, and this part's kind of embarrassing, to be honest, because um, what I, I should be able to say at this point is, and so we went and talked to him about the gospel. What we did was we called our pastor at the time and asked him to come and share the gospel with him. Um believing, as so many people do, that you have to have a, a preacher in the room for somebody to hear the gospel. Um, so, we, so we called our pastor, and thankfully he came. He talked to Thomas. He, he had one of those, um, those little brochures. We, we called them tracts. Um, and you can say what you want. We kind of laugh about them now, like they're cheesy or something, but it kind of laid out very simply this is the message of the gospel. You're a sinner. Your sin separates you from Christ. Christ died for you. Very simple, very straightforward message. And so the pastor went through that with, with Thomas. He asked him if he believed it was true, and, and he did. He heard the gospel, and he believed. And he trusted in it. And it, I mean, it so changed him. Like, in the moment, it doesn't always happen that way that people hear the gospel. They don't automatically, you know, just believe. But he did in hearing it, and, and he, was, he was saved. And he was so excited. I mean, he was so fired up about this. And, and again, he's in his 80s. He's dying in a hospital bed. And he's telling everybody who comes in to see him about what he just learned. And he's got this little brochure, this little paper, and he's showing it to people as they come in. And uh, it was a different day. He, he got to go home one more time and then went back in the hospital and never came home again. But so in that last day in the hospital, I think it might have been actually the day before he died, we went to visit him. And some of Joni's other family was coming in and out to see him. And I remember specific, and he kept showing people, have you heard about this? Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? He, he just wanted to tell them about, about what Jesus had done. And one of Joni's uncles was there, and I remember him showing it to him like, have you seen this before? Have you seen this? He didn't use the word gospel. That's a church word. He didn't know it. I mean, he didn't, he just had this little paper that told him that Jesus would forgive his sins, and he was so excited about it, and he showed it to, to one of Joni's uncles, and, and he was like, yeah, I, yeah, I go to church. I've, I know. It's basically like you live a good life, right? It was very dismissive. 
And Thomas said, and I've never forgotten this, he looked at a little paper and he goes, my whole life, nobody ever told me this before. He was in his 80s. In his 80s. Over 80 years. And he didn't live in, in, he didn't live in China. Okay? He wasn't born on some small island where they speak a language known only to the people of that island. He grew up in Kentucky and Indiana. There's a few churches in Kentucky and Indiana. And he lived over 80 years and had never heard the gospel. Is it possible? Is it possible that that there are people in your life who have grown up in Missouri and Illinois in the United States of America and have lived 20, 30, 40, 50 years of their life. And they're people you know and you see every day. And they're people you go to school with, they're people you go to work with, they're, they're people in your own family. And they've never heard the gospel. It's totally possible there's people here this morning. who have never heard it said that the only way to have peace with God is not through your own personal effort, but through the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. And we can hardly blame anyone who's not heard because look what Paul says, how are they to hear without someone preaching, right? We don't just figure this out on our own. And you can live over 80 years of your life and never hear the gospel unless somebody tells you. Now let's talk about that word preaching for a second um, in verse 14 because here's where we get hung up sometimes and this is what we did back then 10 years ago. Um, we, We thought for somebody to hear the gospel, we needed somebody with a title. We thought preaching was this. Some guy on a stage talking to a bunch of people in an audience. Tell them to turn to a page in their Bible and then talking nonstop for 45 or 50 minutes. This, this didn't exist in Paul's day. Okay, when, when, when Paul was writing this letter, there was no going to church and a guy getting up and delivering a sermon. That didn't happen. When he talked about preaching, the word preaching here means to proclaim. He's talking about talking. What Paul's saying here is nobody hears the gospel until somebody tells them. He's not saying you have to have a seminary degree. He's not saying you have to have been sent out, officially commissioned by some church to go and do this. He's not saying any of that. He's saying... The only way people hear the gospel is if someone else tells them. And how are they to preach in verse 15? How are they to preach? Unless they are sent. 
And so again, we say, well, yeah, yeah, okay. We share the gospel if we've been sent. If my church sends me out, if they commission me in some way, or if I graduate and I have a diploma or something, if I've been, but I haven't been sent. I haven't been called. But that's not what he means. When he's talking about being sent here, he's, being ta- he's talking about being sent by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a call that was given by Jesus Christ before he left this earth and went back to heaven and he told his followers to go into all the world and make disciples. That's the call. And it's for all of us. And as it said last week, we've all been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. We've all been sent. We don't need to wait for some sort of magical moment where the clouds open up and an angel descends with a golden scroll and says, go to this place and preach to these people. That's not what it means. What it means to be sent is you have a message, go tell someone. And if we don't, working backwards, if we don't go, then they don't hear. And if they don't hear, they can't believe. And if they can't believe, they can't call on Christ and they can't be saved. Now that is heavy. I mean, that is overwhelming, isn't it? It is for me. I I don't know about you, but for me, to be told that I have been entrusted with this mission to spread the gospel, I know me, okay? I am intimately uh, aware of my own weaknesses and failings. I'm a mess, okay? The idea that God would ask me to go out on any kind of mission for him, to me, is incomprehensible. I, I am so not suited for, I am so unqualified for the task of sharing the good news of hope with the entire world. That is overwhelming to me. I hope... with all due respect, I hope it is to you too. Because if it's not, you're probably misunderstanding something here. This is a major, major mission we've been given as a church and as individuals to share the gospel with the world. So what do you do when you've been given a task that is just too big for you? When you're just too small for the moment, where do you turn and how do you deal with that? And so I said we wanted to look at two passages. And so real quickly, I want to look at a time in the book of Matthew when Jesus was a part of an overwhelming situation. I want to be careful in my language here. Jesus obviously was God. He was up to every task put before him. He was never too small for the moment. He was not me. And I am not him, okay? So I'm not trying to say that this is a perfect analogy, but what I'm saying is that Jesus was, while he was here on earth, a human being. He took on flesh and he felt the same emotions we feel. 
the same stress, the same pain, the same hurt, and the same love that we feel. And the same feelings that can overwhelm us are present in this particular situation. And what Jesus says to his followers, I believe, is highly or should be highly instructive to us. When you feel overwhelmed by a sense of being called to something that's greater than you, what do you do? So Matthew chapter 9, let me give you a little bit of context real quickly. Matthew chapter 9, the entire chapter. Matthew is a biography of the life of Jesus Christ while he was on earth. And in Matthew chapter 9, he's extremely busy. Because he goes through in Matthew chapter 9, he's healing people. He's refuting false teachers. He's teaching his own followers and trying to correct some false teaching. He's doing all kinds of stuff. He's healing blind people. He's giving people the ability to speak who didn't ever have that ability before. And all this stuff he's doing. And in verse 35, it says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Just constant work and constant busyness because there's so much pain and there's so much hurt and there's so much brokenness. And in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, and I imagine, and it doesn't say this, so this is, you know, my trying to just picture this, this moment because he's seeing the crowds. And, and in, in his day and in their culture, um, homes were built with flat roofs so people could go up on the roof. And I picture him on the roof of a rather tall building looking out over this city, splayed out before him. And he's not seeing like an assembly of people gathered to listen to him speak. But I'm picturing the crowds of people just going through their day, just moving through the city. And Jesus being Jesus knows each and every single one of those people and what's in their heart and the pain they're feeling and the stress of their lives and the hurts in their relationships and the sicknesses and diseases they're dealing with. And he looks out at these crowds and these people moving through their lives. And it says, Jesus looked out and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks out and he sees broken and hurt and lost and lonely people and people in great need. And his response is to feel not anger. He certainly could have. Do you know why we experience hurt and pain and problems in our world? Because of what we have done. It's our own sin that has broken a perfect world that God created. And Jesus was there when the world was created perfect. And he could have looked out at the world and said, this is your fault. He could have looked out at the the people he saw below him and said, look at the mess you've made. He could have said, I am done. I don't need this. He's God. He's perfect. He didn't need to come to earth and and try to help us in any way. And so many of those people that he saw would reject him, would turn on him, 
would call out for him to be crucified, he could have said, enough of you. If you won't help yourself, I'm not going to help you. He could have just said, it's too much. For every one person I heal, three more pop up. But when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He had compassion because he saw them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He knew, Jesus knew what their need was. Their need was not to get better. Their need was not to have a better life. Their need was a shepherd, a savior, someone who could lead them to peace, someone who could lead them to God. And he was that shepherd. He would say it later on, and it's recorded in another gospel, the gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the great shepherd. And he looked out and he saw that the people were sheep lost without him. And instead of filling him with anger or rage or judgment, it filled him with compassion. When we look at our world, when I look at what's going on in our world, am I more filled with with compassion or with judgment? Is it easier for me to see the hurting people around me and say it's because of the consequences of their own choices and if they would only... Or do I let my heart break because they're sheep who need a shepherd? Is my impulse to go and instruct people on how they should be living a better life and what they need to do to fix their mess, and if they would only have done what I have done, or do I see people as just as messed up as I am and recognize that I'm not a shepherd, I'm a sheep too, and I need... I need the grace of God more than any, anybody. When we look at the broken world around us, are we filled with, with compassion? And then he said to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is overwhelming. There are so many people who need to know God. And there are so few people actively seeking to tell them about him. And when you catch a glimpse of that vision, uh, when when you get a taste of that, that mission, when you understand that this is our calling, that we've been called to share the gospel, and then you look at the size and the enormity of the task, it's overwhelming. And so what does Jesus say? And this is where I think we really need to look. 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The task is overwhelming. So verse 38, therefore, form a committee to strategize more ways that we can go about sharing the gospel in strategic cities throughout the United States that will plant more missional churches to... What does he say? He says, this is overwhelming. The task is too big for us. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When I'm overwhelmed, and I'm being honest, I'm feeling overwhelmed lately. I'm a... I've been called, I believe I've been called by God to plant a new church in Troy, and so we're there now. We just moved there this summer, and we're trying, striving to share the gospel, and it's overwhelming right now. The, the enormity of the task in front of us, our small little team, and we look at, at all the people harassed and helpless, and it's overwhelming and where do you go? I'll tell you where I go most of the time. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, I look for more information. Because my default is, if I'm overwhelmed, it's because I'm unequipped because I don't know enough. I need more knowledge. And so I read a book or a blog or I talk to someone, a mentor. I ask for advice from somebody who's been there before, but I try to find more information. If I can get enough information, I won't be overwhelmed because I'll be up to the task and then I can go do what God's called me to do. Some of you, some of you, when you feel overwhelmed, you, you kind of go the opposite, but you still take matters into your own hands. You say, I'm just going to do something. I'm going to jump in. I'm not ready. I don't feel up to this, but here I go. And so I'm just going to do something. And then some of us, and I do this at times too, when we feel overwhelmed, our instinct is just to shut down draw back. I can't do it. It's too much. It's too big. I'm not, I can't possibly have been called to this because I'm not equipped for it. I'm not up to this. I'm not big enough for this. So it can't possibly be what God's calling me to do. And so instead we do nothing. The first thing we have to understand about that is everything God calls you to do, you are not equipped to do. If God calls you to do something, it's going to be too big for you. Because if it wasn't, if it wasn't, you'd do it, and then you'd get the credit. And God's not interested in that. God wants to get the glory by working through broken and unqualified you and me. If he called me to do something that I knew how to do and was qualified to do and was talented enough for, then I'd do it, and everybody would look at me and say how great I was. So he always calls us to something bigger than ourselves. And it should feel overwhelming. And so his instruction to us goes against the way we are wired or the way we tend to lean as people because his instruction to us is not to learn more, it's not to do more, and it's not to shut down. His instruction to us is to what? Pray. 
to pray, to turn to him and ask him to do what only he can do. Why is it? Why is it that I, and and probably all of us, put so little importance on prayer? If you believe, if you believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who's completely in control of everything that's going on, who can do anything, why do we look at prayer, talking to that God, asking that God to do things that only he can do? Why do we view that as like a lesser course of action? Why do we say things? I say this, okay? I say this all the time. Why do I say this? Well, I guess the only thing we can do now is pray. I guess we're just gonna have to pray. It's the only option left. The only option? It shouldn't be my last option. It should be my first. I'll be honest, even in this, in in preaching this sermon, there's a, a huge temptation for me to say, so God says to pray. And then after we pray, we need to, and give you a bunch of action steps of where to go next. But Jesus says to pray. And I've become pretty convinced lately that I don't pray enough. Because I say I believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God who can do anything. And I say I believe he's called me to a task that is much greater than anything I can handle on my own. And then I spend my time trying to figure out how to do it. If you want to call me an idiot, you would be totally justified. We need to pray. I need to pray. We live in overwhelming times. There are hurts and pains going on right now all around us, not just on a national scale. It's true. It's, that's big, and it's true, and it's real. But even in your own life, look, I know there are people this morning, I know this, this, look, this is no news to me. There are people who are like, Aaron, you're talking about these things that happened in, in Minnesota or Dallas or, or Louisiana, and you're talking about sharing the gospel, and I've just got stuff going on right now that I can't even think about that because of what's going on in my family, in my own body, things that are going on that are overwhelming me. And you come, and I look, I've been there, I am there. You go to church on a Sunday, and you hope. You hope you're going to hear the pastor say something to give you some encouragement. And you hope you're going to hear the pastor tell you what to do. You hope that the speaker is going to give you some words of wisdom that you can take and implement this week to change and make your life better. And I'm sorry, I don't have that this morning. I think I have something better. And that's to pray. To a God who knows you and knows every single overwhelming thing going on in your life right now 
and cares intimately about it and is able to do exceedingly more than anything you could ever imagine. And through the sacrifice of his son, he gives us the opportunity to speak to him. So as we close, I don't have any reflection questions to put on the screen for us to think about. I want us to spend some extended time this morning in prayer. Talking to the God who is able to do the task that you cannot do. To fix the relationship that you can't fix. To heal the sickness that you can't heal. To save the person that you cannot save. So let's spend some time talking to him, asking him, begging him. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers. Let's ask him to do something great because he's God and he can. So let's ask him to do things that only he can do. I'll lead us in a prayer and then we're just going to have some time that you can pray silently or I guess as loudly as you want to and call out to the God who loves you and can do anything that you could ask. Let's pray, God. God, you are great. You are perfect. You are holy. You are completely separate and other from us. And we are nothing. We are broken and wretched and sinful. And we are sheep in need of a shepherd. And you and your love chose for reasons that we will never understand to send Jesus Christ to die for our sins. How could we ever doubt your love and your goodness towards us after that? So God, first, we repent. Repent of doubting you and your intentions. We repent of our so frequent desire to fix things on our own, to go our own way, to try to solve and strategize and plan and make things work. We can't, but God, you can. And we have hope and we have joy and we can have peace only because of you, but you are our hope and you are our joy. And so God, please fill us this morning with your love and with your grace and with your forgiveness. Help us not to feel shame at our failings or our shortcomings, but a sense of renewed joy and a renewed sense of love for you. And move every heart, please, God, every heart in this room to prayer. 
If there is anyone here who has never heard that message of reconciliation, God, my my desire, my earnest prayer this morning is that they would trust, that they would believe that it's true and trust in you and you alone for their salvation. And for those who, who have trusted in that and yet so often fail to trust you with our very lives, please change us to turn to you not as a last resort, but as our first and only option. God, lead us to prayer. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.